Well, as you can see from the slide, we're in a different segment of our, of our time together looking at the Word. Um, we've entitled this, Then the End Will Come. It's kind of a, a response to our study in Second Peter, and, and really just an appreciation for the fact that, that time and time again, there are the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul talking about, in the latter days, these things will happen, and that it's going to be met by scoffing. It's going to be met by teachers who are going to try to, to delude us and to try to, to twist the, tr- the scriptures and to help us not to be ready for the coming of Christ. So our, our desire is just to look at eschatology and, and to, to evaluate it in, in some respects. I'll, I'll kind of explain kind of the process that we're going to use, the method that we're going to use. It will be a little different perhaps from other studies that you have taken. And... Um, and this morning will be the first start or the, the first step in this process. I thought it might be, be- beneficial for us to define some terms. Um, five truths that will shape your eschatology. Well, <laughs> what is eschatology? Uh, who cares if I'm shaping my eschatology if I don't know what eschatology is? So let, let's just define some terms. Eschatology is simply the, the, the doctrine of the end times or the study of the final days which includes the coming of Christ. It includes the judgment of the world. It includes things that, uh, that we describe as tribulation and millennium and uh, then the, the rest that God will give, eternal rest. How do those things fit together? What does the Bible have to say about them? And, uh, and how do we approach the subject? Maybe right out of the gate, your question is, why in the world would we even think about embarking on such a study? I mean, after all, there are godly people who disagree. And every one of us in this room probably share a different variation of thinking in relationship to the end times. And there are people who are smarter than us, people who, are, who have studied longer than us, people who know the original languages, people who have, who have been studying the scripture for decades, and they may have a firm commitment to their eschatological view but they have been unable somehow to convince people around them we just need to acknowledge that that this is this is one of those topics where godly people disagree so then why why would we begin to embark on this journey and the simple straightforward answer is because it's in the bible we embark on this journey because we believe in the sufficiency of scripture and as we saw in 2 Peter, we, we saw that it was the knowledge of God that, that opens the door for everything good in the Christian life. In that if God has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness through knowledge of Christ, and the Bible talks to us about Christ and includes last time things, then we want to fill out our worship. We want to fill out our understanding. We want to fill out our knowledge. And we want to be those who come to sit at the feet of Jesus and honor and glorify him through the word of God and even through difficult studies. So we come to eschatology because we, we want to grow in our appreciation of the scripture. So how do we seek to unravel this knot? How do we seek to, to make some sense of something that even the greatest minds, the greatest theologians have been unable to really resolve and to at least resolve in a way that's convincing. I want to paint an analogy for you. Um, how, about, 
Anyone who has done puzzles, we've got a picture of some puzzle pieces up here. If you had a, just a, a bunch of puzzle pieces that were dumped out onto the table for you, and that was all you had, where would you begin? How would you start to fit those pieces together? Now, I'm not, I'm not a puzzle guy, okay? But I've done a couple of puzzles, and I know that some of you are experts and be like, that's not how you do puzzles, Andrew. So you can correct me afterwards. That's really not the point of our study today. But you begin to look for edges, right? That's a good starting place. Look for edges. Look for corners, right? Maybe you look for colors, and uh, you look for certain patterns and certain shapes that are, that are common. Maybe you kind of group those colors, you group those patterns, you, you group the edges, and, and then you begin to try to fit it together. You start on the, the boundaries and you work your way in. Is that at least close to how you experts do puzzles? Our study in eschatology is going to be much the same. My desire for us is not to look at the pieces, not to look at the specific parts and try to create a picture. My desire and what we're going to try to accomplish is look at the the big picture so that you can have a roadmap for how to put those pieces together. That's the goal. And so we want to look at the picture as a whole. And this next slide kind of shows you this is this is a puzzle. And maybe you can't see the individual pieces, but that's okay. That's kind of the point. The point is that we're not going to be able to, we're not going to look at the specific parts, but we, we want to look at the, the picture as a whole. So we're going to look at the picture of eschatology from Genesis to Revelation. So this message this morning really has as its text Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So we're going to be here for a while. I'm going to do this by providing five, five overarching truths, five truths that, that even the experts can agree on. And as we come to align our hearts and minds to these truths, then you'll be able to take those truths and filter the scriptures and start putting those pieces where they belong. And this next slide shows you, do you realize there's actually some puzzles where all of the shapes are the same? Do you know that? This particular puzzle, every single piece can fit anywhere on the board. Now, that would be absolutely frustrating to me. Um, actually, maybe that would be good because I could just put it together and it wouldn't actually look like a picture. But at least all the pieces would be together, you know? That's not too bad, perhaps. What we desire to do is use these five overarching truths kind of align our hearts, align our minds to see the truths in Scripture from start to finish, and then you can begin with this roadmap, with the the, the picture as a whole, to be able to start to put those parts where they belong. So we do that because of eschatology, and we're able to do that because of this really theological word. It's kind of a fancy term. It's the word perspicuity. The word perspicuity is the word Uh, the doctrine of clarity, of plainness, something that is free from obscurity, perspicuity. The Reformation was built on a commitment, a conviction to the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture. 
Rather than allegorizing, rather than spiritualizing the text as often as they could to, to, to pull out the plain meaning, the, the meaning at face value. And it was, that, it was that commitment to perspicuity that guided the reformers. And because of their conviction and commitment to perspicuity, then they developed what was called the literal interpretation. Essentially is simply the plain meaning of the text. What does the text say? What does the text mean? How can, I, how can I understand those words at face value, recognizing the different parts of speech, the metaphors, the similes, the hyperboles, which if you're doing the study guide, you will understand those terms. How can I discern the language that we have and understand and come to the right meaning? Of course, all of that works together. Scripture works together because of the continuity of Scripture. No book of the Bible is meant to be taken by itself. God, through the master design, gave us Genesis to Revelation. These parts that fit together so that they build on the whole, the whole picture, this continuity of Scripture. It's one story from start to finish. And as we come to understand this story, we can begin to understand the picture as a whole. So what is our common reference point? We're going to look at the picture, but, but there is a, a reference point. And I, and I would say that there is one corner that sets the angles of all the other corners on this puzzle. And of course you know the answer, that is Jesus himself. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 bring this home, this truth home to us. When, 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 when Paul writes, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking of Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus himself is the reference point. Jesus himself is the common thread, as we're going to see from our text. And uh, we're going to see from our text, hopefully a little bit more fully than, than we have time for, um, already behind. But uh, you will see that Jesus is the reference point from start to finish. Jesus is the cornerstone. It, it is his stone that sets the angles, the, the faces of all the edges that help us understand how this structure fits together. All the truths of the word of God, not just the knowledge of salvation, but knowing Christ and knowing the word of God, who is Christ himself, knowing the character of Jesus, knowing the word of Jesus, and knowing Jesus himself will unlock the door for eschatology. It will unlock the door for truth as we'll see in our study today. And the teaching of the apostles and prophets that applied the truths that Jesus gave to them in so many different areas of life were the, were the foundation stones that come alongside Christ in filling out this foundation for us. So this study is really meant to be an introduction. This is just scratching the surface. We can only cover so much in about 40 minutes each Sunday. And so... I have tried as best I can to put resources into your hands so that you can kind of wade into these waters as much as you like. You can wade in a little bit by coming on Sunday. You can wade in a bit more by picking up a study guide out there in the back. 
you can really encourage your heart by attending the, uh, the connect group that's happening from 9 to 10.30, and Bo Williamson is helping to facilitate that conversation. It's happening at the end of the hallway as you walk back. And it will happen as you take what we learn on Sunday morning. We're not going to be able to cover all of the material that I have put in those, this, the, um, the notes for yourselves. Allow the word of God to fill your hearts, to inform your minds, so you can grow in your appreciation for the word of God, who is Jesus. So let's jump in. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. John says this, In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John is reaching back to the beginning, and John wants to establish for his audience that Jesus is the first word. And I chose that, 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 that word uh, strategically, instead of calling him the histor- historic word, or calling him the beginning word. He is the first word because not just first in terms of time and sequence, but first in order uh, of preeminence. He is first in priority. He's first in supremacy. He is first in terms of being the beginning and all, of, all that that requires, all that that entails. The initiator, the supreme one, the judge, the one who caused it all. God spoke through Jesus himself to create and initiate life. Jesus is the first preeminent word. John is writing about Jesus Christ, and he stands at ground zero of history. That AC and BC intersect at this point of history where Jesus is the hinge of human history. And that is by design because Jesus is not only the hinge of human history, Jesus is the one that spans from beginning to end. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And John wants to start where everything really begins and that is an understanding of Jesus, is an understanding of who he is in terms of being God and creator of everything. He doesn't start with Jesus as the son of David or Jesus as Emmanuel, or Jesus as Messiah. All of those, of course, are true, but, but Jesus, John uses this designation for the word to help you understand the inescapable truth that Jesus is not just a baby, Jesus is God. He takes all the mystery away, all of the suspense. You don't have to wade into the gospel of John to get to the the punchline. The punchline is Jesus is very God. He was with God. He made all things. He's the one. That's the purpose statement that he provides for us in John 20, 31. That these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He is not only the one who spoke physical life and physical existence into place, he is the one who came to establish and to make life with the Father possible, spiritual life with God. John uses this designation 
to help us orient ourselves to who this Jesus figure really is. We see in verse 1 this emphasis of the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. This co-existing, co-eternal being. And even here at the beginning of this gospel, we find he was with God and he was God. And somehow in the complexity of theology, Jesus is one of the persons of the one and only God. He's eternal. He was with God from the beginning. His birth was not the starting point. It reaches back to before time as he is creator and initiator of all things. Verse 3, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. This world from the beginning spoke about his existence. And John, perhaps more than any of the other gospel writers, wants his audience to understand that Jesus is this common reference point past, present, and future. And knowing Jesus will not only help them understand the present time and the present expectation of God, but knowing Jesus in his character, the word of God as spoken even from the very beginning will help you even begin to understand the common themes of the scripture to begin with, from Old Testament to New. What occupies the attention of John is that Jesus is this unchanging standard. And as we come to know Jesus, then he can begin to set everything straight in our thinking about truth. So let's spend a moment just recognizing Jesus as the word of God from the beginning. What was the precedent that was set for understanding Jesus and understanding this word that was spoken? Jesus, by the way, not only as the one who initiated and created life, but but Jesus as the word of God, speaking the message of God in the language of God. How was this language, these words, to be understood? John goes back to the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the closest approximation to that, lifted straight out of the beginning of your Bible in Genesis 1, is in the beginning God created So if you have your sheets, your outline, let me just walk through this and and make a couple of points about interpretation from the very beginning of the word of God. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And now the creating process really comes to light in verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Then verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the water. And it was so. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Then verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Verse 11, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night. And it was so. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. 
Then verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves which, uh, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And then verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind and it was so then God said let us make man in our own image after our likeness so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and it was so and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day there are a number of patterns that you can detect just from a, a reading, a quick superficial reading of Genesis chapter 1. I mean, just draw your attention to them. Notice the divine word of God. And God said, verse 3. And God said, verse 5. And God said, verse 9. And God said, verse 14. And God said, verse 20. And God said, God as the initiator and the first word that spoke everything into existence. God is the one who stands supreme over his creation as the one who speaks, the one who initiates. God did not ask for permission. God did not consult mankind. God did not ask for our advice. The word spoke and matter appeared. And the word, according to the apostle John is Christ. Christ speaks. Christ initiates. Christ creates through the breath of his mouth. Notice also the direct result. Verse 3, and there was light. God said there was God said let there be light and there was light. In verse 7, and it was so. In verse 9, and it was so. In verse 11, and it was so. And it was so. And it was so. God spoke God initiated, and it happened. Notice also the precise language that is used. In verse 5, and the evening and the morning were the first day. In verse 8, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And the evening and the morning and the evening and the morning and the evening and the morning. The precision of language in words, intent or, or uh, meant for us to be understood in plain, simple ways. The, origin, the originator of words demonstrates how these words are meant to be understood. From the start, we find that words are direct. Words are clear. Words provide plain meaning. And when God speaks, he not only, not only do the right objects appear, but the right objects appear doing the very things they were told to do. Light flashes, expanse appears, water gathers, vegetables sprout, sea life swarms, living creatures creep. They do exactly what they're told to do. And then God evaluates his creation according to the measure of the words that he has spoken. Notice verse 4. And God saw the light was good. In verse 10, and God saw that it was good, speaking of the water. 
Verse 12, God saw the vegetation was good. Verse 18, God saw the sun and moon were good, and so on and so forth, down through this chapter until you get to verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Why? Because what God spoke is what happened. And God, in evaluating the interpretation of his words and the way it showed up in his creation, said, that's very good. That's very good. This precedent continues throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And we don't have time to go there. I initially thought, hey, I'll just walk through a couple of these examples, and, but we don't have time for that. Except to draw your attention just to remember that in Genesis chapter 2, God provides direct and clear instruction to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it. Because the day you eat of it, you will die. And what does Satan do? The deceiver, the one who seeks to, to oppose God, his very first words are, did God really say? Challenge to the interpretation. To challenge the meaning of words. That's what Satan will do. And what, is, what does Eve understand the words? Eve understands the words are clear. She repeats them right back to the serpent. Word for word. And then when God comes into the garden, after the disobedience happens, God is evaluating their conduct based upon their obedience to the clear commands that he had given to them. We could look at Noah and his family. We could look at the Tower of Babel and how God said, be fruitful and multiply. And when they decided to gather anyway, God confused their language and spread them across the world so they could actually be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as he commanded them to do. The words that God spoke had meaning they were to be interpreted just the way he spoke them. And throughout the Old Testament, we can follow the same precedent. God speaks, man responds, and God evaluates. He blesses obedience, and he curses and judges disobedience to his word. Because Jesus is from the beginning, Jesus is the first word. But as we move our way back to John, we find that Jesus is not only the first word from the beginning, Jesus is the present word, the present word. We notice that in verses 9 to 11. Notice it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John is absolutely emphatic here. Jesus... Uh, he says in verse 9, it was coming into the world. In verse 10, Jesus is in the world. In verse 11, he came to his own. Jesus is here. Jesus is present. And then in his little letter of 1 John, he says at the very beginning, he says, that which was from the beginning, John is absolutely obsessed with the reality of the beginning nature, the first word of Christ. And so he, he talks about that and now joins it together with the present word when he says, <coughs> excuse me, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, excuse me, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched concerning the word of life. We saw him. We touched him. He was real. He was physical. He was present. And all of the prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament came true just the way the prophets prescribed it. And we see that 
throughout the New Testament and throughout the Gospels. So how does the New Testament confirm the witness of the Old Testament? Is the New Testament separated? Is it isolated? Is it unconcerned with how the life of Christ actually fulfilled the words of the prophets of the Old Testament? And just want to briefly demonstrate the significance of the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Um, this is a book called The Commentary on the New Testament's Use of the Old Testament. It's 1,100 pages, okay? If there's any, if there's any wonder about whether or not the New Testament uses the Old Testament, just use this. Boom. I was hoping to use effect and make it loud, but it didn't happen. Sorry, Sorry. Sorry Isaac, I'll get you a new book if, uh, if you need Notice these, these facts. There are 224 direct quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 26 paraphrases. There are 45 close references, close associations of, of uh, Old Testament concepts and Old Testament truths that are found in the New Testament. That's about 295, if my math is right, of a... Of, uh, uh, quotations in the New Testament that are, that, are, that are used of the Old Testament in the New Testament. There are 362 verses in the New Testament that access and talk about the Old Testament and, 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 and use those quotations, which means there are one in out of 22 verses in the New Testament that are actually lifted out of the Old Testament. This is amazing. 94 of those quotes from the Pentateuch. 99 from the prophets. 85 from the writings, which means that every genre in the Old Testament is not only confirmed, but that every book, except for six of the Old Testament books, is, is, is uh, directly quoted in the New Testament and confirms not only its reliability, but confirms that Jesus is the word from the Old Testament that is showing up in the present day. If we want to know eschatology, if you want to know the end times, if you want to know truth, know Jesus, love Jesus. So every part of the scripture is relevant because every part of the scripture speaks about Christ in some way and lifts up our understanding of who God is. But if we dig a little deeper, we begin to, to realize that the testimony of Jesus is something that the the prophets in Luke and the gospel writers paid special attention to. And we don't have time to, to review all of those, those parts that I put in your notes, but I just want to draw attention to a couple. First is in Luke. We, we're familiar with Luke, the gospel of Luke. Eventually, we'll get back to Luke, um, hopefully sooner than later. But in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 and 17, the angel Gabriel has come to Zechariah the priest. He's in the temple. And Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth had been waiting for years for a little baby. And they've been praying and waiting. And, 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 and finally, he gets his turn to go in to the, the holy place and to offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation of Israel. And the, the angel shows up to 
Zechariah and promises him a son that we find in verse 13. He says, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, and you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And I will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And those last few verses are a direct quotation from the final book of the Old Testament in Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where the prophet says the same thing. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The words that were spoken by the prophet 400 years before were finally taking uh, flesh in this new son who would be called John the Baptist. God's word was true, God's word was plain, and God's word carried out in a physical, real way, and a spiritual way through the ministry of John the Baptist. One more. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we find that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel now comes. He's sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Why Nazareth? Well, because, and, and also why Galilee? Because in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah said it must be this way. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Speaking of this exact region. It was unimaginable to the people living in that day that Messiah would come from the far reaches of, 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 of Israel up into the place of the northern ten tribes. Now, it would be more uh, obvious and, 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 and more certain if he were to come from Jerusalem, but certainly not Galilee. And that's where Jesus came. And then Luke moves on. He says, not only from the city of Galilee named Nazareth, but to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Why a virgin? Because in Isaiah chapter 7, 14, we find, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. The words of the prophets spoke and the angel came to Mary who filled exactly the expectation of the words. The plain, clear meaning of the text shows up. And you could go through the rest of chapter 1 and through the rest of chapter 2 and you can see how not only is there fulfillment of promises but there are specific references that are drawn in through Simon's song and Zachariah's song and Mary's song the word of God stands as a word of continuity. Jesus in his own ministry 
not only through the arrival of Christ, but through the ministry of Jesus, we see that Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill it. Jesus came as a means by which the law and the prophets could show up in physical form. Jesus, in his first public sermon recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Accomplished just as you expected. Accomplished and fulfilled just as the law prescribed. And so, even in his innocence, even in his, in his uh, um, childhood, his parents helped to carry through the procedures of the law, the regulations of the law that we find in the rest of Luke chapter 1 and 2, so that Jesus could, in fact, meet all of the conditions, just like the law spelled out. Finally, Jesus is not just the first word. Jesus isn't just the present word, but Jesus is the final word. He's the final word. Notice in John 1, 12 to 14 as we close. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we were walking through um, the series on First Peter, we used the word glory as kind of the, the prevailing theme of that letter. You remember that, that glory is the, the physical display of God's presence among his people, and preeminently that came in the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of God was clear. What is the glory of God in the person of Christ desire to accomplish? We see the priority that John places here on Jesus as the glorified one bringing all things and making all things new. The things that were broken in the garden through the fall, the corruption that came to the world, and the and the isolation and the separation between God and man because of sin. Jesus came to restore. Jesus came to correct. And so in Jesus' coming, he reestablishes his glory by, by demonstrating his ability to overcome sin and overcome death and to, to reestablish the relationship that was broken between God and man in the garden. As we were working our way through 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, we saw that for God said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The first evidence of glory for us as individuals happens when God takes initiative, he shines in our hearts to let us see the glory of God and then respond in faith and salvation. It's the same thing that, that, that John is describing here in John 12. That those who believe in his name will be able to be called children of God. They will, they will see and savor this glory. But notice how it happens. Verse 11, excuse me, verse 13. Who were born, 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God who is first. God who initiates. God who draws us into relationship. God who breathes life, physical life into the world is the same God who breathes spiritual life into our hearts. And that same glory is the glory that stands at the end of the ages. That, that final authoritative preeminent word that Jesus speaks in Revelation 22 and 21 where he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And John, it's not a coincidence, he's the one who reaches back to the beginning. He's the one who tells us about the word of God made flesh and then he reaches into the future by writing the book of Revelation helps us see it is the same reference point. Jesus Christ as the word from start to finish. And as we come to understand and love and know Jesus, we'll be able to unlock the door, the door of revelation and knowledge of God, not only for salvation, but also for every other aspect of truth that we find in the scripture. And Jesus will stand as judge and king, and Jesus will stand as one who is beckoning and calling his bride to himself and celebrating on that final day. To bring this to a close, and to go back to what John had said uh, earlier in our time of worship, it is the word of God spoken from the beginning who speaks life into the world, It is the same word that we are able to utter as the living and abiding word of God. Imagine the blessing that we have as those who have the living word of God and we can utter it on our lips. The same power, the same authority that isn't resident within ourselves, but has the same power to speak life, spiritual life into dead hearts through the power of God may we exercise that power, not only in our own lives, to allow the word of God to create a a living, a growing, flourishing heart, but as we're speaking life through the words of God into the ones we love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this study. And I pray that you would help us as we seek to unravel this mystery. Anchor our hearts in the settled confidence that Jesus is the common reference point. So in knowing and studying eschatology, God, I pray that you would help our hearts to bow and worship to the word, the beginning word, the first word, the present word, and that final word. May you be pleased with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you.